Hi, my name is Sherry Doherty, and I'm a 54-year-old lady in red in act two of my career and living my best life. My perspective on life and behaviors have been governed by who I was as a child, who I became, and who I am still striving to be. People my age are beautiful, bold, confident, and full of wisdom. And truly, the encore of the story of your life is still when the best songs are yet to be sung. My mission in this podcast is to shine the spotlight on people like me, have real conversations about reinvention stories, and inspire you to continue to follow your dreams regardless of your age. I'm doing it for Daisy. Who are you doing it for? Good day and welcome to today's episode of the Encore podcast. I am excited today to have with me Rebecca Rapis, who is a registered psychotherapist and the founder of Limestone Psychotherapy. He's also someone that I have known personally for many years and have been watching from a little bit of a distance just because of geography and life, but she has been on some amazing journeys that I'm fascinated to watch and have had the honor and privilege to reconnect with her. And it's been wonderful hearing the journey she's been on. So I'm excited to have her share it with all of our listeners today. Welcome, Becca. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and share a little bit of my journey with all of you. You do have a very interesting story with lots of twists and turns. It's it, a journey. It's <laughs> a genuine journey. Yes. What I really admire about you is given the twists and turns I know your journey has taken and not always the twists and turns you wanted, Absolutely. you have such a sense of peace. And mm. so whenever I either interact with you or I see you, even see you on social media, you're just exuding joy. And I love that. And joy is a choice. I know we've talked about that. But I love that. So I want to share all of that goodness with everybody sure. else in traditional format, if you will. Can you just go back and tell us a bit about who Becca is? So sure. where were you born and raised? What was your childhood like? Were there any highlights or lowlights that you'd like to share with everyone? And then we'll kind of get to the middle. And sometimes that's a messy middle. And then we'll <laughs> see where you are now. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Sure. Well, I think that it's probably better to state that it's been not so much a something that happened in the middle, but a trajectory of different things. Who is Rebecca? Basically, who I am is somebody who normalizes what growing up in intergenerational trauma, neurodiversity, we can get into that term in a minute, and just hardship and navigating hardships really is about and helping people alchemize that. That's what I do in my practice. I feel like my journey has actually been more of a teaching, if you might say, or a coming of knowledge and wisdom. I think that I'm at the point in my healing and in my journey where I can look at everything that I have been through and I can actually have appreciation and gratitude for some of those experiences because they were life lessons that have given me the wisdom that I now use to help people who are going through those same things, who had childhood traumas, you know, who live with ADHD, autism, trauma, PTSD, CPTSD, all these terms, you know, there are kind of all umbrella terms that we use in the mental health kind of realm of the world. But I didn't know any of those things existed. And back, you know, I'm 44 years old. So back, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't have the research and the science and all the things that we know now about what all those things mean. So I, a lot of my story was me navigating all of these unknowns, not understanding that I had these exceptionalities, I'll call them, that hindered my progress to a normal journey okay. <laughs> that someone might say they had, right? 
so, you know, I grew up in a very rural town back then. And it's now called Stittsville or it is Stittsville. But back then it was very rural. It's not the way that it is now. It's kind of amalgamated with Ottawa and it's all one big, you know, place now. But back when I was growing up, it was, you know, no buses in, no buses out, no taxis. You know, if you wanted to go anywhere, it was relying on your parents and, you know, everything you needed was right there in your little village. And my father grew up in Stittsville as well. So, you know, his generations went back far in Stittsville. So, you know, it was very much home for me. I lived there my entire life practically until I left and moved to Kingston where I was for 13 years and then moved back to Stittsville. And now I'm in Ottawa still, Kempville is where I'm currently located, but as we'll learn in my story that I never stay anywhere too long. So <laughs> this is where my current home is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, full disclosure, when I'm sharing about my journey, I always like to kind of just, you know, put it out there that these are my perceptions of my experiences, the things that I have endured and the things that I have been through at the hands of other people. I know now have a lot more to do with how broken our society is and the conditionings and things that, you know, we all were exposed to that made me the way that I was then to one, be in a vulnerable place to be victimized, but also then to, you know, find the knowledge to get out of it and be more empowered, right? And, you know, I always share with people that like education and understanding self is like the main thing that's going to get you there. You know, you talk about me being at peace and at joy. Well, because everything I've ever gone through was actually bringing me back to the person inside me that I was ignoring. And because of all these constructs and things that our society has taught us about, you know, anyone who's not neurotypical. And when I say neurotypical, I mean, if you haven't had any of these adverse experiences, or you don't have something that's wired differently in your brain, neurologically speaking, you know, life is harder, right? And makes life more challenging. And then what comes with those challenge is more trauma, because you're not understood. Um, People don't understand you and how you work in the world that has been constructed for neurotypical people. So that's kind of a summary, you know, about why my journey has been the way it has been. There have been some wonderful, beautiful moments with all people involved in my life, good and bad. <laughs> I don't know if I would say good or bad, but, right. you know, the experiences are what they are. And so I will talk about those if you choose to question me and dive into them. But, you know, growing up, let me set the stage. My earliest memory that I have of realizing that something was off or that I didn't understand what was happening was I can remember being about, I think it was around five years old and we had this back like kind of playroom in our home and I was underneath, I had pulled my dad's recliner back so that it was like against the wall like this. And I'm curled up underneath it in my little feety pajamas and I'm in a little ball and I'm crying and the one phrase I can remember saying is nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. Genuinely believing that. Right. And so, you know, now that I'm 44 years old, you know, I've been trained in mental health and understanding the, the, you know, foundations of where we come from and where our mental unwellness and wellness comes from. I started wondering like, how can a five-year-old, you know, when we're born like pure and ready for the world, how does in five years someone become to a point where they don't love themselves or they feel like they're not lovable? Right. And so the many years that haunted me, I didn't understand it because, you know, unless you go to school to take any type of psychology, you really don't understand the intricated uh, workings of the brain and how our thoughts can really 
be influenced by every little thing we're exposed to. And so, you know, as I grew up and got older, I started to understand the dysfunction that was involved in my family. And while I love my family, there truly was trauma. And some of it was passed down. Some of it was, you know, my parents had really adverse experiences and they were treated even worse than we were, you know, as children. They did their best based on what they had been through. You know, I'm talking physical abuse, you know, lots of stuff, alcoholism, all sorts of, you know, heavy things that you know, back in the 50s and 40s and things like that, you know, we didn't know anything about how that can impact someone's growth or, or their well being parents just did it. That's what they did. Right. And so my parents, you know, they worked hard to change who they were, and become better parents for us. And, you know, of course, then me and my siblings have done our work to do things to make life better for our children and so on. And that's what intergenerational trauma kind of is. And a lot of us have it because no parent is perfect, right? And no family is perfect. And, you know, these scenarios or these situations, they impact everybody in the house different. Every child has a different perspective of what they experienced with each parent, right? So that's why I say my story is mine and my perception of my experiences are mine. So I learned that there were a lot of things going on in my life. My parents were, you know, hardworking, they were out of the house most of the day. You know, I didn't have a stay-at-home parent. There was, you know, dysfunction. There was arguing a lot. There was alcoholism. There was stuff that just impacted me and didn't give me the foundation that I needed to know that I am worthy, if that makes sense. Because here's what we know when you take the now version Rebecca, who puts the science on the old version Rebecca. Hey. Children who live in dysfunction or live in any type of environment that isn't nurturing them, they automatically turn inward because we trust the adults in our life are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. So there's this break in our different parts inside of us that make us think, well, it must be me because they're not getting it and they're not changing. So it's got to be me. Right. So what that sets the stage for is you know, let's push it forward a couple of years, 10 years, maybe. So what that looks like is you have 14 year old Rebecca, 15 year old Rebecca, who still has these insecurities, who still is looking externally for love and affection. And that's putting her in a place of vulnerability to be taken advantage of. And so, you know, my high school experiences, my even younger age, like I know a lot of women can probably relate to this too, because when I talked earlier about society being a little broken, <laughs> you know, everything that we were seeing growing up about women and, you know, sexualization of women and all the messaging that we get in commercials and non magazines and all these things, you know, it's all compounding. It's not just one particular thing that led to my insecurities and my, you know, disconnect from that nurtured, beautiful, pure soul that came into the world without all these things yet. Right. So, you know, that's really what this journey has been about for me is I now look back going, okay, well, these experiences were actually always trying to get me to look back and go in me and find that little girl that deserves the woman I am now to protect her and take care of her and make the decisions for her. Right. So I was navigating this world with these adverse childhood experiences, no confidence whatsoever, and looking in all the wrong places for the answer. And that led to a lot of different things. You know, I was very sexualized as a kid. I wanted attention in that way because that's what I thought made me important. You know, so high school came with 
confusion around that even more. Because as we know, in high school, it's all about experimenting. It's all about trying to find your way. It's all about trying things out. But when you're insecure in your own self, you know, you're often left empty because people just take, right? And for that moment, it feels good, right? You're like, oh, I feel important. This boy liked me. He gave me a kiss. He hugged me. He, you know, whatever else. But, you know, it doesn't last forever. So there's always this kind of, how could I word it? There was always this like seeking of myself in everybody else. Right. And again, taking the science now and applying it back. Well, it was rooted in these modelings that I had in my home where I have to worry about everybody else's needs in order to feel loved. In order to be loved, I need to make sure that I don't disrupt dad or I don't upset mom or I'll just do what they want me to do. And I mean, I was not always an easy child. I mean, I could sit down, you could sit down with my parents and they'll tell you like (laughs) I was wild and I still am. Like I am a wild woman and I'm proud of that. But society was making me hate that. The experiences that I was going through were making me hate this quirky, neurodiverse person that I am because it's not normal. Be quiet. You're too loud. Sit still. Stop doing that. You know, going against the grain, right? Going against the norm. And so, you know, high school was high school. Lots of experimenting didn't help. (laughs) Just added on to the trauma and to that loathing of myself, that shame that comes with, you know, not understanding why these things are happening. You know, when I did get into relationships, I ended up unfortunately being in a lot of abusive type situations because to be honest with you, I had a high tolerance for it because it's all I knew. I watched the dynamic between my parents. I was the modeling that I had my earliest years. So I honestly didn't even know that that's what I was experiencing. So that led me to my first marriage. The one that gifted me my beautiful daughter and we were young and fiery and it was a lot of passion, but it also came with a lot of toxicity and we just brought the worst out in each other. Right. And again, still this kid inside who thinks that they're hated and just wants people to love them. So they're just going to do whatever, right? We call that people pleasing in, you know, the therapeutic world as when we talk about it in therapy with people. Well, we're in this people pleasing phase, right? Where we just want people to be happy. But what we do when we're doing that, when we're constantly people pleasing and putting everybody's needs first, we're abandoning ourselves. And subconsciously, our body and our mind knows that we're abandoning. So then we have even more shame, even more guilt that we don't even really recognize we're engaging in, right? It's a kind of unspoken source of energy that's deep down in here, right? So then we're navigating the world and, you know, and through all of this stuff, I still was happy, right? Where that comes from, I'll kind of sidebar. The reason I can find peace and be happy amongst the chaos is one, neurodiverse people are used to chaos. It actually feels more comfortable to us to be in chaos because normal feels harmful because normal is what everybody forced on us. So we're used to chaos because our insides is chaos, right? Like a neurodivergent person, someone, especially with ADHD, like myself, there's a whole world going on in here, (laughs) right? (laughs) And it's a good one. We're happy. It's not damaging at all. It's just, it's distracting, right? And so that's why we're kind of loofy and silly and loud. And sometimes we interrupt because we get this thought that pops in our head and we need to tell you right now, you know, there's all these things that come with that. But when I was quite young, I had a major trauma. I lost somebody very significant to me, very tragically in an accident. I was about 10 years old. 
And one of the things that helped me get through that and grieve through that, and I still haven't fully, I mean, grief stays with you forever, especially when it's something significant like that, was he had a philosophy in life that tied to the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And he was my dad's brother. So he was like a father figure to me too. And we were very close. We had a very close bond. And he had been through hard stuff. Like he battled addiction, but he was like that guy that when he walks in the room, he just lights it up and nobody would ever know the struggles that he was going through. And I always felt a very kindred spirit to him, probably because we are very similar (laughs) in nature. And that don't worry, be happy kind of metaphor for me stuck with me. And, you know, every time I hear the song or every time I'm just, you know, worrying about stuff, I think about that. And I think about channeling his spirit, channeling his guidance to help me get through these things because I know it's going to be okay. It keeps him alive in my life, right? And, you know, when I was talking about like adverse childhood experiences and I was talking about how like when you have piled on traumas, you're drowning, You can't survive in society that's normal because you're not. You know, what we know is that if you have, say, ADHD, and then you have these traumatic events that happen, and you don't have an environment that's, you know, chaos-free and calm and whatever, you're drowning. Like, you don't know which way is up. So when you're at school and you're sitting in that desk and you're wiggling around because you've got, you know, mom and dad's arguments going on in your head, you're thinking about your grief for your uncle, you know, you're thinking about just how much you loathe yourself because you don't understand why all this stuff is happening to you. Like, how are you supposed to learn? How are you supposed to be confident? How are you supposed to feel good? Like, again, back then, I had no idea that that wasn't normal. I thought everybody was going through this sort of stuff, right? Until I'd learned that it wasn't. And that was as I got older, right? Mm-hmm. When you start to get your executive functioning brain and you start going, oh, you know, wow, Lucy doesn't act like that, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow, look at how quick she went through that math problem. How come I can't get through that math problem that quick? Like you start to pick up on these things and that makes it even worse for yourself, right? Unless you have a resource. So if you don't have what we call protective factors, so like having parents who actually take time to sit with you and help you without being too distracted with their own lives or having like a good teacher that takes time to see you and hear you and understand you, you know, being part of social groups or having good friend circles, whatever it is, you know, the things that keep you connected to that self, you're out there, you're floating and you're kind of lost in the system until either you figure it out yourself or someone helps you, right? That's why I do what I do, because I was that floating kid. I was the floating kid who everybody was grabbing at to take what they wanted from, and I didn't know how to protect myself. So here I am, you know, getting traumatized over different things, and there you go. So here's the pivotal moment, the first pivotal moment. So as I said, I got married, technically. We weren't married. We lived together, common law. We were together for four years. Again, I did not really realize that what I was experiencing with him was abuse because I thought it was normal. And then four years into the relationship, I had my daughter. And that was a really wild time because I was young. I was only 21. And that is young to have children. I know there's people out there having children at 21, but we grew up together because I was a baby. I didn't have any foundation yet. So I was thinking, what am I going to do with this kid? Right. (laughs) But it was her very birth. And I know that you know me outside of here. So you know that I'm big on number synchronicities and messages from the universe, like that sort of thing. 
Yep. So she was born on all twos. She was born on the second month of the 20th day of the year 2002. So I knew her presence in my life was significant. I knew that her presence on this earth was significant based on that alone. So having her changed my life right away because I started viewing the world I was in through her eyes. I started viewing the world that I had taken a role in and tolerated through her eyes. And I went, whoa, no, this is effed up. What am I doing here? Right? That's great. Now, so it took me as well. Well, yeah, because I didn't want her to experience what I was. Right. I started to see that what he was doing to me was not okay for what I wanted for her. Right. And it brought me also back to that little girl in me who witnessed those things around her too. And I remember that little girl being under that couch, crying her eyes out, hating herself. And I went, no way, Jose, we're not going there. This kid's not going to have that. So it took me about two years to figure out how to navigate out of that, which is fairly normal when it comes to leaving, you know, abusive situations. I lost everything. I literally left with, you know, her clothes, my clothes, her toys, half of some of the belongings in the house, but that was it. I had a thousand dollars on my bank account and off to mummies, we went <laughs> to live. So, you know, here I am, I'm living in my parents' home again with this beautiful little being. She was about two or three years, about three years old at this point. And then I'm navigating the aftermath of separating and co-parenting with an abuser, which is, that's a journey. That's a whole other podcast. All right. Exactly. Yeah. Another time to talk about narcissistic recovery, but you know, that was a whole other thing and it was terrorizing. It was horrible in a lot of ways, but right. it was her that was the light. And I just kept navigating through my intuition with what was best for her. So then I thought, you know, oh, here, you know, I haven't been through enough. I'm going to start putting myself out there. I'm going to start dating. I'm going to like, I had nobody. I had no friends because, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with abusive partnerships, but generally you get isolated and a lot of your friends are ostracized and they don't come around because it's painful for other people to see what you're going through when you don't even realize you're going through it. Yeah. Keeping in mind that, you know, being back in my childhood home with my parents going through their own separation was not pretty. Oh, and I was sharing a room with my daughter at the time. And, you know, again, it was dancing, it was music, it was art, it was all these things that we could do to bring joy and be in that don't worry, be happy mentality. Now, some people might look at that and think, oh, you were just kind of bypassing or you were, you know, gaslighting yourself to what was really going on. Probably because at that time it was a defense mechanism. It was a protection for both of us, yeah, right? Sure. Defense mechanisms are something that can be harmful if they've run their course. But when it comes to trauma, sometimes they're protective. And a lot of people don't realize that when they are witnessing someone in their life going through trauma, because they think, oh, you know, well, it's bad that they're drinking, or it's bad that they're, you know, self-harming, or it's bad that they're doing something. Well, okay, yes, it is. But let's get them support and find some source for them that will help them learn the things that they need to make that better, instead right. of us shaming them and guilting them or making them feel bad for doing something that's actually protecting them right now, right. It's actually keeping them in survival. 
And, you know, we talk about fight or flight and nervous system dysregulation as a bad thing, but actually in some of these circumstances, it's what's saving them from being attacked by the bear, right? Because we're fucking running, right? <laughs> like, yeah. and so it's not until years after you leave the, part of my French, I know I just swore. That's okay. so fun, but, you know, part it's of- the, it works. <laughs> right? Well, this is it. It gets the message across. That's how yes, I think. Sure. But, you know, it works. It helps us survive. And when it comes to recovering from trauma- it takes years to feel safe out of that, right? Because yeah. it's all we've ever known. So again, keeping in mind, I still don't know what I've been through. I still don't understand. I'm just in survival mode of making the life the best that I can for Izzy, trying to make sure that I'm just getting to work and doing what I need to do and just trying to rebuild my life. Like it was very much survival mode. Yeah. And I thought it would be, you know, wise to start dating again and put myself out there on dating sites because you know again I'm that girl who's looking for the external validation all the time right. I need someone to love me to make me feel like I actually matter so here we go <laughs> so fast forward to the big like aha moment for me I had started dating this guy and it was I know maybe like three or four months into dating him and it was a long distance thing at the time and I remember Things just weren't right. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I was like, I just don't know what's going on here. I feel off with this thing. I was drinking a lot. Like I was partying a lot, like not in an inappropriate way where I was like falling into alcoholism, but like I'd put my kid to bed, you know, on a Friday night because I lived with mom and dad. So I had a live in babysitter and I would go out because I had no friends. I had nothing. I didn't know how to socialize. I didn't know how to make friends. I didn't even know how to have hobbies. Like I knew nothing. I was so naive. So I thought, oh, I'm just going to go out to the local pub and start meeting people. That's how I'm going to start having a life again. So I would do my bedtime routine with Izzy, put her to bed, and then I would go out. And I literally made some of the best friends I've ever had that way. Because I literally would go to the bar and I would sit there and I would get my liquid courage on. And I would look at the funnest group of girls in the room and I'd walk over and say, can I join you guys? I'm by myself. And they'd be like, and I would literally, that's how I started to socialize. I didn't know how, I didn't know that there were book clubs. I didn't know that there were, you know, dance studios that adults could join. I didn't know that there were, you know, all of these different things, sports teams, like you name it. Right. I had no clue. I was totally in this, like, I don't even know what you call it, like bubble of conditioning under the guise of abuse, right? I had no clue. So anyways, one night I'm out, I'm feeling this thing with this guy. I don't know what's up. It feels off. It doesn't feel right. And we're at the club. And you have to remember when you are somebody who has experienced trauma, you get triggered often by a lot of different things. And like we become almost like Superman with our spidey senses. We have sensory overload. Again, it's a defense mechanism because we are always scanning the environment to evaluate threat. That's what we do because we have been abused and we don't feel safe on this planet. So here I am scanning, you know, I'm at the bar I'm with my best friend at the time. She's still my best friend, but at the time we were there. And I don't know what happened, but we were standing on the dance floor and this guy who was drunk came up and put his arms around us. And I don't know what he said to me in my ear, but whatever you said shot me instantly into a PTSD episode, like meaning like things went black almost. And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed with emotion that if I didn't get out of there right now, something bad's going to happen. Like they're going to see a meltdown like big time. And I didn't want anyone to see that because I was a very private person. That's what trauma also does to you. 
You hide everything because you have to, because society doesn't understand it. So I was like, I need to get out of here. And I looked at my best friend and I said, I gotta go. And she could tell that I was like, like a deer in the headlights. And she said, you okay? I said, yeah, I just gotta go. I didn't even want her help. Even though I know she would have walked me to the cab and sat with me and come home with me. But I was like, nope, I'm going. I walked out of the bar. I didn't even make it to a cab. I saw the first dark corner and I ran.